This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 169. And the quote of the day is from Herman Melville, who said, It is better to fail in originality than to succeed in imitation. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. I hope you had a great weekend. And speaking of originality in that quote in the beginning, one of the ways to develop your originality is practice and effective practice. And Nate over at the8020drummer.com has figured out scientifically how guys like Mark Giuliano and Calvin Rogers and people like that actually practice to get their most out of their practice time. And for all the Drummer's Resource listeners, he's put together a three-video series that you can get for free at the8020drummer.com forward slash Drummer's Resource. If you really want to step up your practice game, Nate will show you the way. Now, the conversation that I have today for you is one that I've been waiting a long time to do. It's Dave Garibaldi, and he is arguably one of my biggest influences as a drummer. I worked out of his Future Sounds book for years. Uh, I actually still work out of it a lot because of the, the creative ideas that are in there. I've been a huge Tower of Power fan for years as well. So this is this is one of the interviews that, that I'm really proud of, really excited to share with you. And personally, just one of, one of my favorite, just because I'm such a big fan of Dave's playing and everything that he's done for the community. So Without further ado, let's get into it with the one and only Dave Garibaldi. Dave, how are you? Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Good morning. It's an honor to be here with you today. Well, let me tell you, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. I've been a fan of yours for many, many years and spent hours and hours in the practice room trying to figure out squib cakes and soul vaccination and, and what is hip and all this stuff in college and worked out of future sounds and, and just have been a fan of your playing for years and years. So I really appreciate you doing this. It's, it's a real honor to have you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And I, I always like to get a little bit of backstory. And as I mentioned off air, there's plenty of information about you, uh, online, but I, just a little bit of your background, just so we can build a little bit of context in the conversation. Okay. Uh, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay area. Uh, I was born in Oakland, grew up in Pleasanton, California. I currently live in Livermore, California, which is about five miles away. And uh, so pretty much in the area where I grew up, I uh, started playing drums there in elementary school when I was 10 years old. Uh, began playing the drum set when I was 15. Played my first money-making gig on the back of a flatbed truck outside of Sid Reese's Music Store in Livermore, California with a big band and realized, wow, I can make money doing this. This is pretty cool. So, you know, this started being in rock bands with friends, and I had my own bands and um, went in the military, was in a military music program in the Air Force, Air Force Band, got out, went back to the Bay Area, and then met the Tower guys. And One you know, thing that I didn't are, realize that, that you were in the service I was, yeah. Um, so first of all, thank you for thank you for your service. And was there a lot of um, w- was there a lot of rudimental 
rudimentary training before getting into the service or did you learn a lot of that while you were in the service or? Well, sort of both. I, I didn't play really that well at the time. I was like uh, 19 when I went in and I okay. went in actually, I had gotten drafted uh, in the army. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rule was at the times that as long as you went into uh, the military to fulfill your service, you could go in at any time before your draft date to any other service. So I opted rather than go to Vietnam, which was what would happen if you went into the draft because of the army drafted me. Right. I went into the air force, uh, for three and a half years. It was a four year commitment instead of the two. And the chances of me coming home alive were increased, mm-hmm. which I thought was pretty good. Right. So, uh, I went into enlisted as a clerk and then at, in basic training, the one guy, a sergeant came around one day and he says, who plays music here? They're, couple guys raised their hand, you know, me included. They said, well, you, you want to go audition for the band? I said, yeah, yeah, it'd be great. So I went over, I auditioned for the band. Next thing I know, I get my orders to my first duty station, and it's to the band. I was in the band program. So I thought, oh, this is cool. Hmm. So then it went from there, and then they're all the rudimental stuff and learning. You know, they had, like, a lot of training programs and other stuff. So it was, it was a great experience. I loved it, really. So at that age, before going into the service, were were you of the thought that you were going to try to do this professionally, or was it was it something that sort of sort of happened naturally? Well, no, I had already made my decision. You know, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to play music. You know, um, mm-hmm. I wasn't interested in nine to five sort of work. Um, I loved the creative thing about music. Uh, you know, sure. Just wanted to play. Yeah, because you know? sometimes I talk to people and they say, you know, at seven, I knew that I was going to go do this. Or some people said, you know, I was 21, I had a job, and then I got in this band, and, yeah. you know, it sort of took off and then decided, hey, 17 for me. 17 years old was kind of when you get the little picture of, and it, literally, that's what it was, is I sort of got this picture of the kind of drummer that I wanted to be. Couldn't do any of it, but I knew that this was going to be my life path and um you know never questioned it just Hmm. went just went there so what was the what was the picture that you had in your head i I liked uh all this different kinds of music i've always i grew up in a kind of a environment in the bay area there were san francisco bay area where there's just music everywhere and there was all different kinds of music and so uh i grew up in the jazz tradition i liked that a lot i still do uh i love big band um count basie woody herman all of that stuff you know the village vanguard orchestra you know all these different big bands i liked all of that stuff uh, i liked classical music i liked latin music there's a lot of great latin music in the bay area i liked rock and roll r&b all the stuff you know uh, brazilian music, everything so the vision that i got of myself was this multi-headed uh you know drummer that could sort of had all these influences and kind of could play the, you know, I liked R&B music a lot. So I kind of wanted that to be my base of things and then draw in all these other influences, whatever it is that, you know, I liked and kind of create a, a voice that way. All yeah. this happened in my head when I was 17. I couldn't do right. any of it, you know, but that's where I started. You know? 
Well, and not to jump too far ahead, but creating that voice is something that you've absolutely done because, you know, you're wildly regarded as, as the, the godfather of that, the linear funk style. And now that's almost like, you know, people call that like the, the Oakland funk sound now that, you well, there was a lot of, there was a really, a, a real characteristic way that guys played there. There was, you know, um, myself, there was Mike Clark. There was, uh, Gaylord Birch, Michael Shreve, Sandy McKee, Harvey Hughes, uh, Eddie Marshall. Uh, there was a number of guys there who were very unique, really cool players. And so everybody had their own sort of vibe and it was very friendly. Another guy who was really great. He teaches at Berkeley now, Tony Smith. Um, you know, all these guys were there in the Bay and it was, everybody had their thing and it was mm -hmm. very, very cool, you know, and it was very characteristic of the area, you know, very specific, uh, a, a sound, you know, way that guys played. It was cool. Right. And I, I actually had Mike Clark on the, on the podcast and he mentioned that, you know, you guys would be playing at like separate clubs and would, would, would check each other out. And it was always sort of like, not a friend, not a competition, but sort of a, a friendly, uh, it was always very friendly with Mike. Yeah, Mike was just a cool guy, you know. We've stayed in touch over the years, and I just love him. He's just, I love his energy, you know. He uh, loves the tradition of the instrument, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, the the guy that was was really competitive with was Gaylord Birch, who was the drummer with Cold Blood. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, Gaylord was a really cool guy. We're good, really good friends, and... He was, uh, but it was like uh, every time we went, we, we played opposite each other. He was in Cold Blood. I was a T.O.P. Uh, we wanted to just kick each other's ass. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and uh, the gigs were very, very competitive. Like with the bands all trash talking and all kinds of crazy stuff. But the gigs were fantastic and really music at a really high level. It was really cool. Um, but, you know. It was all very friendly stuff, you know. Right. Now, so is the scene is the scene in Oakland still the same? I mean, is there still a thriving scene around there or no? Well, the Bay Area has a music scene, yeah. But it's a very, you know, it's different. You know, the that era, the, the late 60s, early, early 70s, that was like a golden era in the Bay Area. That was like a musical gold rush. People really have no idea kind of like how cool it was and how much music there was going on there. Um, of all different types that all the record companies had, you know, recording, there were recording people, uh, they had, uh, studios there. Um, there was all the clubs were full of musicians playing. There mm -hmm. was live concert venues all over the place. Bill Graham, you know, started the Fillmore there. And then Bill, he was our first manager and, uh, Bill was, uh, would do shows where, he would have, you know, the Buddy Rich Orchestra with 10 years after and Ravi Shankar, you know, right. stuff, stuff like that, you know. So he was educating the public uh, uh, about music. And so he was turning on young people to all this different kinds of music. And it was a very, very popular thing. And so mm -hmm. the, the, the concert format, as we know it today, was kind of invented by, by Bill. Well, I was going to mention for the people who don't know who he is that he was a he was a promoter and a and a manager, right? Yeah, I mean, he was and yeah. would put on all these crazy like festivals and concerts and things like that and big ones. Yeah, and he was 
kind of the guy that he had the Fillmore in San Francisco, which then moved to the place called the Fillmore West, which is in downtown San Francisco. And it was a great concert venue. And that would go four nights a week. And uh, the bands would play every night, you know, mm-hmm. of, of their run. Then the Tuesday night was an audition night. And that was where they had like a battle of the bands. And that's where we, we won our record deal there. It's called Sounds of the City. And uh, then there was a, they had a basketball game in there I mean, for the, I mean, it was just all kind of little crazy stuff. Cause he was a little bit like, he, he was a little bit eccentric too, wasn't he? He was eccentric, but he was a very smart businessman mm-hmm. and not to be messed with. He didn't like to be, he was from New York. He was a real tough guy, but very, had a very soft heart. If you know, you were straight with him, he was straight with you and he right. didn't like to be messed with. But he was a very, very gentle man. He was just a cool guy, you know, mm-hmm. and really was tapped into like the pulse of the public. Really knew what you know. He, was, he had a vision. He knew what he was doing. You know, mm-hmm. it was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard uh, many stories about him. Not, I've actually never talked to somebody who who worked that closely with him. Um, I know. Growing up, my cousin was – he's my cousin's a lot older than I am and uh, always had all these Bill Graham posters and everything and, and would always tell me, you know, all these stories about about concerts and things that he went to that, that Bill Graham had put on. And, and I would hear that he would do all this, all this you know, crazy stuff. Uh, but it's cool to hear firsthand about, you know, what type of person he was. Well, yeah. Was, you know, he started the whole thing with, you know, uh, lights and sound. Mm-hmm. You know, at at shows and all of that stuff, light shows and everything. You know, uh, it was pretty amazing. One interesting story is um, there was a period in, in our in our band's history where we weren't doing so well because we, you know, we're all a bunch of guys have uh, you know recovering alcoholics and dope heads and all this stuff. You know, so right doesn't exist anymore. But during the period when it was bad, Bill was always around. And kind of looking out for us and all the, even after we were, you know, uh, away from him. Um, but he was always hiring us, you know, we'd play for him all the time, do different things. And it was a Christmas party at Wolfgang's in San Francisco. And um, he came into Emilio, the leader, and he had an envelope with uh, $10,000 in it. And he gave it to, you know, Mimi or the leader, you know, Emilio. And he said, I don't know, I don't care what you do with this, but this is for you. Hmm. So, you know, he split that up amongst all the guys in the band. You know, that was Bill. That's, the, you know, nice. that's the way that he was. Hmm. What was it? Just, he just did it to do it? Yeah. A gift. Wow. He knew, he knew the band was struggling and, uh, you know, he loved us and uh, just wanted to be a friend. be Right. Support. Help out a little bit. Yeah, Absolutely. So that's the kind of guy he was. I, I'd like to backtrack a little bit about about well, two things. I want to talk about the formation of Tower of Power, but a little bit before that, we'd mentioned something about finding your voice behind the kit, and I think that's something that's that's a really intangible thing for drummers. It's easy to you know grab your grab future sounds and and look at the the exercises that are written out and play through them and say, okay, now I can play this thing. But to sort of take all of that stuff and develop your sound. For for us, we have books, you know, that you, that you wrote and things like that. But how did you develop your sound, and how did because your sound you've totally differentiated yourself as as a player? And what's your advice for for drummers out there who want to differentiate themselves and come up with their own sound? I think you have to be yourself. I mean, always. I mean, that's the. 
I always wanted to be myself. I didn't want to copy anybody else, although that's what you have to do when you're learning language. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, you know, drumming and music, uh, you can look at musical styles as, you know, language or dialects of language, mm-hmm. right? And so to be conversational, you have to do it a lot. You have to experiment. You have to use the vocabulary. And so just like people's individual use of language, the language that they speak, they adapt or, or I should say develop an individual use of language, colorful language, the way that people use words and things by using it, by interaction with people. It's the same thing with music. Your interaction with other musicians develops your ability to be conversant. And mm-hmm. so your ability to be conversant sort of shapes your personality. So, sure. you know, your, your expression of yourself, your musical ideas, it's the same as language. When you discuss things and you have ideas about things, you have opinions about things, mm-hmm. you know, use your language to express that. Well, it's music is the same way, your vocabulary. So you have to get in the practice room. You got to learn some things to play. You got to go through this future sounds. You got to go through John Riley's books. You got to go through stick control. You got to go through all this material to sort of develop some ideas to play. And then you take those things that you're learning and you shape those and play music mm-hmm. and let the music that you play dictate how you use your vocabulary. Mm-hmm. So all the stuff that you're learning is just the, just the vehicle to get you exactly where you need to go. Exactly. So everyone has a unique way that they view their life, a unique way that they view the music, a unique way that they view the things that they do, a unique way that they view their interactions with others. Everyone has that. And so what that takes is you kind of like dropping all of the influences that you have and say, okay, what am I about? What am I going to do here? Right. And then start, begin. <laughs> sounds, and, you know, it sounds simple. <laughs> well, but it's not, it's a project, you right. know, it's a life, it's a life path, you know, mm-hmm. and being yourself musically is very difficult because people get scared, you know, there's, work considerations there's all these other things you know well it's it's art it's nothing more nothing less if you have the you know i've had the good fortune to um make a living playing music mm-hmm. my whole all my adult life you know right. I've, I've, I've made money playing music but i was never scared to do it i was never afraid to do it i knew that i was going to be okay i just knew it i wasn't afraid i stepped out there and every decision that i've made in my life was to support my vision for myself my family understands it i have a great family life um you know and i just stay on this path that i'm on was was there ever fear there not really i have to say it no 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 i was more concerned about wanting to be the best person that i could be Mm -hmm. and doing what it took to do that. And I was never afraid of attaching a paycheck to my art. Mm-hmm. That's the difficult for people. Right. Music is really great. Art is really cool. But then all of a sudden when there's a paycheck attached to it, 
it becomes something way different because right. then now you got to feed yourself. Now you got to feed families, you know, all these other things. So not every environment that you live in supports that. Mm-hmm. So you have to go to places where it's these hotbeds of creativity and hotbeds of, you know, art and things going on that support artist type communities. You mm-hmm. know, they are they're they're everywhere, but you have to search for those places. Sure. And then you have to set about the task of using all the musical skills that you have, not just playing drums, but every part of music that you like that you use to make you you. You have to draw on those things when you want to make a living doing music. Mm-hmm. Call it all in. Do it all. If you like writing books, like I, I like to teach. I like interaction with young musicians. I like all of that stuff. I, you know, you have to market yourself. You know, mm-hmm. I like all that stuff. I mean, it's all part of being a musician today. You just can't. Right. You can't just be playing the drums. It's more. Mm-hmm. I talk about the lot, that a lot in the podcast because I, I I love business as well. So, you know, I talk about it all the time about you know you're a creative entrepreneur. You are you you have to not only play, but you have to have your business right, and you have to promote yourself, like you said, and market and have men, multiple irons in the fire and and all those things to to make it work. Especially nowadays, it's not like it was you know, 30, 40 years ago when you could just be a studio guy and you know be like Hal Blaine and have a yacht, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was like, even in LA at the time when Hal Blaine was around, I mean, that was like the golden, you know, era of recording. I mean, you know, there was so much, when I moved to LA, there was so much recording going on. It was ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And you could pretty much walk into a scene and start working. You right. Know? Right. So it was very, very different. Question for you. I've met, I've met two, or I shouldn't say I've met, but I, of all the people that I've talked to on the podcast, there seems to be two types of people. So one, it's the type of people that say, I will play and play and play no matter what. And I'll, you know, I'll sacrifice everything else to be able to play drums for a living. So whether it's, you know, living in a shack and not making it and making barely enough money to scrape by, I'll continue to play. And then there's other people that say, I love playing, but you know, I'm not willing to sacrifice everything to be able to play, uh, just play drums full time. Where would you say that you fall on, on that, on either side of that? No, I'm definitely in the first group. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've slept on the floor when I was younger and, you know, my first gigs with tower, we were, we played at this place called the stop in Lake Tahoe, California. That was like my first weekend with the band. And, uh, we were playing in a club and then, slept on the floor of the club, you know, right. gear in a van and that kind of stuff. And I loved it. I thought it was just here. I'm doing what I like to do. I'm playing with a band I love and, you know, music mm-hmm. that I love and all this stuff. And it was just cool. I liked it. Ignorance right. was bliss. You would know? you do that now though? That's the, I wouldn't do it now, but that's, you know, it, it for every great thing that you want to do in your life, there's a price that you have to pay. And so are you willing to pay the price for what it is that you want? Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say that someone who takes a different path than that, you know, uh, 
it, it, that's it. It's invalid. It's, it's not, it's all personal decision. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think one way is better than the other. Every person has to decide what they're going to allow in their life. Right. Mm -hmm. And what they're going to allow themselves to do to create the situation for themselves that they want, find the success that they want. Success is different, you know, for everyone. Sure. You know, self-defined. So people have to just kind of look at themselves and see what they want to do. How do they want to approach it? Mm -hmm. What's your definition of success? I think being yourself, not being afraid, uh, stepping out there and kind of living what it is that you want, mm -hmm. you know, and then if you have goals and dreams, you know, are you working toward those things? Mm -hmm. Are you a, are you a, a, a goal setter and like a daily routine kind of guy that's, that's working toward that stuff every day or. Yeah, somewhat. I mean, I have a loose kind of a structure at times, you know, mm -hmm. I go through periods where I'm really focused on certain things and other periods where, you know, I just get tired of it and just kind of do my gig and, <laughs> you know, stuff like that, like everybody else, you know, but I say for the most part, I'm a pretty motivated person, you know, to learn and I love learning. Mm -hmm. And I was at Berkeley college uh, a couple of days ago in Boston and was sitting in John Ramsey's office, you know, he's the chair of the percussion department, you yep. know, and, uh, we started talking immediately about learning something and, you know, it was all focused on, you know, have you heard this and have you heard that? And he says something like, you know, he looks at me, he goes, it never ends. Does it? Nope. You know, and <laughs> you know, we just started jumped right into it. You know, he right. sat down in his office. As soon as my butt hit the seat across on his desk, we started talking, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, with, when I see Mike, you know, Mike Clark, that's the way that it is. You know, when I see Michael Shreve, that's the way that it is. When I see Dennis Chambers, you know, that's the way that it is. All my friends, you know, we just, they're excited. Right. You know, learning, I learned, I, you know, this is going to sound cheesy, but, you know, learning is fun. I, yeah. I, I enjoy learning and not just about drums, just, just learning new things and expanding your mind and, and, you know, you know, I, if, if I think if you want to, um, really get somewhere you got to hang out with people who are as excited or more excited than you you got to hang out with people that are smarter than you surround yourself mm -hmm. with with people who um are positive you do all that kind of stuff and you're going to be the same way sure you're going to be like you're, you're going to be like your friends are if your friends don't give a shit you're not going to right <laughs> You know, yep. you're the I average like, of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. I mean, I want to be somebody that gives a shit about things, you know, right. I care. I care about my friends. I care about my relationships. I care about my family. I care about my performance, mm -hmm. you know, and all my friends are the same way. They care about their lives and, you know, the impression that they make on people and their reputations and kind of what they're leaving when they go somewhere, you know? Mm -hmm. It's the, to me, I think of it as the equivalent as I've always wanted to be the worst musician on the bandstand, <laughs> you know? Yeah, 
hear you, man. Okay. I mean, not in a, not in a, I understand in a negative way, but, but yeah, I want, you know, I want to be, I want to be brought up to, to the level of the people that I'm playing with, not brought down to the level of the people that I'm playing with. Yeah. Our, our group, you know, the, the, the tower guys, you know, they're all like, it's a self-policing sort of unit, you know, everybody gets along super great, you know, really great friends, but very, um, competitive, uh, want to do well, um, every night play well, have high standards, you know, Mm -hmm. a high bar, you know, we set for each other, you know, which I think is cool. You know, you want to hold each other to high standards. You want to be good. You know, that's what you got to do. Right. Well, I think the longevity of the band is a testament to that because when did you guys start? 68? Yeah, actually before that, it became known as the Tower of Power in 1968. But Emilio and Rocco, they've been playing together for 50 years now. And they started playing when they were together when they were 15 years old. Wow. So, you know, they're life companions pretty much. So with our band now, you know, like we've gone from being bandmates to friends to family to Mm -hmm. now an organism, you know. Right. We're going to take a quick word from the sponsors. As you know, I've been playing DW for years, and DW has just acquired the rights to produce Gretsch drums. And the last time I was out there in Oxnard, there were some amazing Gretsch kits out there that I didn't really know were available and were out there. I mean, I knew about Gretsch, but didn't know uh, a lot about them and got to mess around with them. So there may be a Gretsch kit in my future as well, because they sound amazing. They look amazing. And they just launched a new site. And my friend Anna is actually the person who built the site. So check it out at GretschDrums.com. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. So I get a lot of questions about symbols, and if you're looking for symbols that are not going to break the bank, check out the Sabian XSR model. Now, they have all of this trickle-down technology and B12 bronze and all of this stuff, but the thing that you need to know about is the fact that you can get a really high-quality symbol at a low price, and they are the best-in-class period. So for more information about Sabian's XSR model, head over to Sabian.com. I'm pumped that Promark is now a sponsor of the podcast. Once again, they were last year and now they are again. And they just released the Mike Portnoy signature model that has the Active Grip 420X. And it's designed to add more power to your arsenal. And it features the heat activated Active Grip technology. It's an awesome technology. It actually adjusts to your body's temperature and gives you control you need. So no matter how hard you play, Active Grip is going to help you handle it. it. It actually gets tackier as it warms up. You can learn more about this great technology and the Mike Portnoy stick at Promark.com. Now, let's get into it, or back into it, I should say, with the main man, the funky one, Dave Garibaldi. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about, and this is sort of a, a selfish thing, but I want to talk about Future Sounds because I love that book and I've studied that thing cover to cover numerous times So, uh, and, and, and have worked through it. So what was the... What was the in the inspiration behind that book? And then I'd like to talk about really some interesting ways to use that book as well. Well, it's kind of a, a, a cool story. Um, I had written uh, this book that was about an inch and a half thick, and it was kind of everything that I knew about drumming I put in this manuscript. Mm-hmm. And I had sent it around to a couple of companies and 
I didn't like what they were telling me about what they wanted to do with it. And I just wasn't confident in, in you know, the way they were reacting to it. And I had knew, known about this gentleman named Sandy Feldstein, mm-hmm. who was, Sandy was like, a, at the time was one of the, the most famous and successful music publishers. His name has come up numerous times. On yeah. The well, he was like a, a really interesting guy. He was a college professor. He uh, taught at Potsdam university. He uh, was a drummer, uh, music uh, businessman, six, very successful. He was this multi-headed kind of guy who had this really good business sense, but he was just like one of the guys. He was just a really, really interesting, relaxed, motivated, cool person with mm-hmm. vision. And so I had known about him, so I called Alfred Publishing and asked, that's what he was running, Alfred Publishing, and I asked, could I speak to Sandy Feldstein? Well, they put me right through to his office, and um, I was surprised and shocked that he knew who I was, and would love to meet. I asked if I could meet with him. He says, of course we set up a meeting. Awesome. So I brought my, my manuscript in there. You know, it's like an inch and a half, you know, thing. Uh, and he took it and went home, put it on, he said, he put it on his dining room table and he graded it like a college paper. <laughs> and it was, we met again after he had done that. And he had really looked through it. He really, you know, had checked it out and, he said, this is really, really great stuff, but you don't have a subject. Because I'm thinking, well, hmm. I'm writing about the drums. There's my subject, right. right? But he said, no, you have to have a subject. You have to have a theme, and it's got to be 80 pages because that's what most drum books are at around 80 pages. And so you have to refine this down into one thing that you want to talk about and save the rest for something else. Okay, I never thought about it like that. Mm-hmm. So he says, come back in two weeks. So I went home and kind of racked my brain for two weeks. And then one day in my practice room, I realized the thing about that I liked most about drumming was the groove, the beats, you know, the the funky beats and all that stuff, the hi-hat, snare drum, bass drum thing, you know, that coordination stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And I realized, okay, there it is. There's my theme. So when we met again, I called him, you know, I says, I'm ready to come in. So we, I went in and met and um, told him what, what it was. And he said, excellent, here we go. And we started working on, you know, the book. I didn't sign anything until the book was finished. It was a handshake. Wow. We, I signed nothing. And uh, he worked with me the whole way. He published the book. He produced my first videos, the drum videos that I did. And he never once during all the work that I did with him told me what to do ever. Not one time. Really? What, what he would do was he would sit down with you and you in your conversations, he would ask you questions about things and make you think about what he was, was what it was that he saw that he thinks that the direction you should go but he wouldn't tell you to go there. Mm-hmm. He would ask you questions and then make you think about it. And the, and you'd come up with the answer. It was brilliant. So hmm. he never interfered with the creative process. He never stuck his nose into it, but he was always there watching, observing. And then he would ask you a question. And in the, in the answer to the question was the thing that he wanted you to get. 
Right. It was, it was brilliant. <laughs> so that's so making future. you, making you answer your own question. Exactly. Right. And so that's how future sounds came about like that. He let me, you know, de- you know, develop a, a cover art, um, that wanted he, they they wanted to put a snare drum on the book, real classic thing. And I thought, or drum set. And I think this is really pretty corny. We can't do this, <laughs> you know. And so, can we have art? So the the art director at the time, I can't remember his name, but he got really upset because oh really. Yeah, because I was being very specific and this is what I wanted and this is how I saw the book, you know, as a complete artistic package, right? Mm-hmm. So he came back with the art for the, um, for future sounds and it was brilliant. Yeah. And so, you know, it was a, a beautiful art piece that looks like a drum set, but it mm-hmm. wasn't a drum set, you know? So to me, that was what I want, you know kind of the finishing touch on my initial statement in the publishing world. You sure. Because I was trying to get gigs. I tried to get gigs at, uh, you know, places to do clinics, North Texas, all these other places. I couldn't get anywhere. And finally, after my book came out, I remember I went to uh, done a, doing a clinic at North Texas, and um, Robert Chitroma, who was the head of the department there, uh, said – you know, I told him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. I've wanted to be here for such a long time. And, and I, I, I tried, but was never able to. And he says, now you have scholastic credibility. Really? So before you yeah. had a book, they... They weren't, weren't interested. But then as soon as I had the book out and they saw what it was, then I be I was relevant. Right. Your 40 year career as a drummer was, was irrelevant though. Yeah. But then he, 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 the words he used were scholastic credibility. Really? Yeah. I thought, wow, this is how interesting. <laughs> I never thought of it like that, you know, but after that, um, that opened the doors to all the educational stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. And would you agree or disagree that the, the music business and the drumming business are two totally different things. Music business and drumming business. Yeah. Meaning, you know, the, like you said, you, you know, you've had this, or I said, but you've had this career playing professionally and touring and done all those things, but then you want to go into sort of the drumming, the quote unquote drumming side of it. And they say, well, what, what, what books have you written? And, you know, and, mm-hmm. and w- whatever the case may be, I always, I always make the, the comparisons of, or not the comparisons, but the differences of, you know, the music industry and then the, the drumming business. And I don't think that they align all the time. Well, maybe not, but I mean, I think if you want to, if you want to work a lot and you want to have like a real diverse, you know, music life, I think you have to, there's business in it. Sure. So drumming business is really interesting. Uh, you know, there's all a lot of, there's, there's the teaching side of it, clinics, you know, all these things. Um, I think what opens the door for those things for you is to have, is to be able to teach, mm-hmm. you know, nothing wrong with teaching. Teaching is a really cool thing. I mean, teachers, a really great teacher understands all about how to get you 
moving in the direction that you want so that you can have successful time out there doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have to have standards. I'm going to work for this much. I'm not going to work for that much. I mean, you know, there's, you got to have a dollar amount maybe. Right. Nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's all part of having a plan for yourself. You know, business, a, a little business plan, you know, mm-hmm. some guys I know are really entrepreneurial, you know, some guys are really, really awesome at that stuff. You know, they have like a whole side of their thing where it's like books and they're doing this one guy I know, you know, he sells hot sauce. He's got a whole line of stuff, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it's whatever you can put together for yourself so sure. you can keep it, keep things going. Mm-hmm. You know, some guys can do it solely with, you know, uh, music, you know, and I also come up from the era where kind of, you know, your work opens all the doors for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that today, you know, guys, you know, they want to know about endorsements and, you know, all these other things, you know, but really, you know, if you just, set about the business of making yourself as good as you can make yourself, that's going to open all the doors that you want to have open. Mm-hmm. I think I get an email every day about someone asking me how they can get an endorsement. You ain't going to get it if nobody knows who you are. Right. And, and it's like, what, what it's not going to, I think that the misconception is that as soon as you get endorsements, all of a sudden you just become this, this person. And it's like, you're yeah. only, you know, Roy Burns from Aquarian told me, he said, look, We'll give you the endorsement and we'll support you along the way, but it's your job to, to grow your, your brand and, and to make yourself known and That's we'll, correct. and we'll help you every bit that we get, but we're, we're not going to make you a star. That's correct. Roy yeah. was like, uh, the first, when I started doing clinics, uh, was with Rogers drums and Peisty cymbals and they hooked me up with, with Roy and we would go on the road together and Roy taught me how to do drum clinics. Cause he was the first guy, yep. you know, and, uh, what a great man. I mean, we had such a good time together and he was such a cool guy. He taught me so much stuff and we would do, you know, our little gigs together and he was masterful at the way that, you know, he approached the clinic. He could teach, he could talk, you know, um, he could play. I mean, it wasn't, the focus was on the, you know, in those days with clinics, the focus was education not blowing up your drum set and impressing everyone. Right. You know, it was teaching someone something. Mm -hmm. If you can blow up your drum set, teach people how you can blow it up, you know? Right. I think that, that there's a video of him. I think it's his last drum clinic and he, he does just that. He blows up the drum kit, but you know, he's, (laughs) but he's, you know, like you said, he's first and foremost, he's a, he's a teacher and explains, you know, Oh, he's wonderful, man. He had he always had good stories. He was funny. He, you know, had good timing with the audience. I mean, he right. was just, he was masterful at it. You know, it was brilliant. <laughs> Speaking of funny, I handed him, I was at, at NAM in January and I handed him a pair of brushes and he plays them. And I work with a, with a drumstick company, uh, a buddy of mine owns and he plays them and, and he looks at him and he goes, looks at the handles and he goes, nah, they're, the handles are, they're, they're too round. They're too round. And he hands them back to me. And I said, what? He goes, the handles, they're too round. I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, they're, you know, they're too round. And I'm like, 
Uh, and he then he just starts laughing. He's like, "How could they be too round? They're supposed to be round." <laughs> but you know, I'm like, it's Roy Byrne, so I'm, I'm yeah. listening. Like, of course, what? Oh, he's, he's onto something here. Yeah, I'm like, what's he what's he talking about? And then he just you know, then he just starts laughing. Uh, speaking of Nam, this is this is something that you probably don't know, but you and I actually met at Nam, and <laughs> I have a random picture of me, you, and Sinbad. Oh, standing at the Vic Firth booth from like three years ago, <laughs> which is just the most, I don't know. I thought it was a pretty random picture. Sinbad's a big, big music fan. Yeah. He's a, he's a drummer or is he? I'm not sure exactly what he plays. Well, my friend, Fred Dinkins was playing drums with him. Hmm. Okay. So maybe, he does, yeah, maybe he's like a guitar player or something or. It was I'm the first sure. time that I had met him, but man, he was like really into it. You know, he knew about this and that. I mean, he was like a really, really interesting guy to talk to, you know. And hmm. He was cool. Really, really nice guy. Yeah, he was I mean, he was nice, you know, when I met him. But uh, I didn't talk to him very much, but he was definitely a nice guy. Uh, so I want to – we were talking a little bit about Future Sounds. We sort of went down uh, down a different road there for a second. But I, I love talking to people about practice, practice techniques, advice for practice, because everybody has a, a different way that they practice or different advice for practice. And I think getting as many people to talk about it as possible is best. And then the listeners can sort of pull out bits and pieces of what they think will work for them. So what's your advice on, on practice and what does, you know, say a typical practice routine look like for you? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, the thing about practice is daily. Um, make it a habit, make it part of the way that you make music. Uh, it's a way to get in touch with your instrument that you don't get just if you do gigs. Mm -hmm. Um, you can focus on things. You can get in there in the practice room and, you know, really ramp up the suck factor, you know? (laughs) Because that's what practicing about is about is to focus on the areas where you have like deep suck, right, and then chip away at turning it into an asset or a strength. Mm-hmm. Can I interrupt you there and ask a question? Yes. So, just we're just going to say I'm going into the practice room and and I say, okay, I suck at eighty five things. Mm-hmm. Where you know where should I start? Make the list of those 85 things, prioritize them. What are the things that you need to do the most? What are the things that are the most pressing? And then those are the things on the list that you work on. Mm-hmm. You might not get to the other, you know, if you have to, the top 10 or top five, even, you might not get to the other things for a while, you know. <laughs> I think, you know, the, the, a list that long is a life list right you know? and so I, I believe that you have to just get in and you know spend time working on your hands you know mechanics mechanics mm-hmm. you know are very very important because if you want to play well you got to have good technique you got to have good chops mm-hmm. you got to be able to move your hands and feet in a coordinated way and have it sound really good you don't get that if you're not working on it right. now, 
you you know you can't use someone who uh, plays really well but never practices as your example. Mm-hmm. You can't have those kind of people be your role model because not everybody's built like that. There are people that can do it, not practice and sound really good and blah blah blah. And you know, we've all heard stories about who they are, right? You know, but for for us mortals. I think you have to get in and work at it. It's just like eating well. If you want optimal health, you have to eat good. You have to exercise, right? Mm-hmm. If you want to have good energy, you want to take care of your body, you know, it's the same way with drumming. You have to make it a priority, a project that you revisit all the time. Mm-hmm. So in my practice sessions, I spend a lot of time working on mechanics, hand technique, you know, rudiments, uh, stick control, uh, roll studies, you know, all these things, you know. I spend a lot of time on my drum set, um, you know, building coordination ideas, you know, just playing, you know. Mm -hmm. I have parts of my practice some days I just go in and I just play. I don't think about structure. I just play. But – I keep, I'm aware of what I'm playing. And if something sounds good to my ear, I write it down. I have, I keep notebooks. Notebook, I think, is a really important part of my practice because over the years I've, I've collected tons and tons of great ideas. And it's all comes from me, it comes from my head. Sure. You know? And so that's how I view that. Those notebooks show how I think about music, how I think about drumming, you mm-hmm. know, and it's a visual representation of what's inside of me. Mm-hmm. And I use it for ideas for songs, for ideas for books, source material for articles, source material for to build on other ideas. You know, it's never ending. It's it's unbelievable. So I have these notebooks and I put little dates on the day, maybe, or I'll have a whole series of ideas that relate one to another and they lead to something else. Everything always leads to something else, you mm-hmm. know? So that's kind of how I do it, you know? And the, the, the quantity of time that I spend is not nearly as good as the quality of the time that I spend. Mm-hmm. A Jojo Mayer told me years ago, he said, practice. He said, don't, don't practice for time practice for results. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going and practicing for time, I mean, you're not working at GM, right? You know, you're not putting fenders on cars. I mean, come on, you know, this is, you're, 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 scul- you're, 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 you're building a sculpture and that sculpture is you, the kind of drumming that you want, drummer that you want to be, right? And so you just chip away at it. You know, you just get the picture of what it is that you want and you just chip away at it every day. You go in and say, well, let me add, a, take a little thing off over here. I want this over here, you know, mm-hmm. and you're not going to get that in a year. Right. It's it's a lifelong journey. It's the learning thing that we talked about yeah. prior. Yeah, it's the as my friend calls it, the grail quest. Yeah. <laughs> so you get in there, you you make your list of things that that you suck at, and then you prioritize and and then from there just 
chip away or do you like taking three or four things and working on them until you have them and then moving to the next or hitting all 10 of them or well i mean i guess it depends on how much time you're willing to spend and and kind of how you want to do things i mean i think multitasking really confuses people Mm because it doesn't really it's not really a good concept it doesn't really exist and so just focus on one thing pick a thing start on something and then hit it for a long time you know, mm-hmm. pick a handful of exercises that or build some exercises that illustrate the problem, that highlight the issue for yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you can't come up with th- something like that, go take lessons, go study with someone, have a teacher. I always have a teacher. Always today. Even I always have teachers and or go to people when I have issues, things I don't understand, something that I want to, you know, get another perspective on. I make a phone call. Mm-hmm. Do you or, do you study with someone now on a regular basis or no? Well, he says I don't, but I do. <laughs> you know, this friend who, to me, is like a Yoda kind of a guy. Nobody knows who he is. I mean, he's just a local guy, you know, here in the Northeast. He's just a wonderful guy, you know, great friend. And he's just as smart, you know, mm-hmm. and has a perspective on drums and on life and on work and practicing all. So that every time I talk to him, I learn something. Is he? He's a teacher. I mean, is a he's a drum teacher? Yeah, he teaches drums. He personal trainer, you know, fitness, you know, right? You know, he's got a great family, but he's just smart, you know, and he's got a perspective that, to me matters you know it's helpful mm-hmm. you know and your teachers uh, you know they're, they're, there's the saying that you know when the student is ready the teacher will appear well sometimes you don't know who that teacher is going to be it could be your best friend it could be you know someone who you see all the time you know mm-hmm. if i have something really specific that i want to get hands on I just make a call to somebody and I'll go where they are, get on a plane or get in my car or whatever I got to do. You know, I, I wanted to, I was having issues with, with my bass drum technique. I didn't understand it. You know, I didn't have good place to start. So who do I think of? Well, Steve Smith is a pal of mine. Mm -hmm. So we've known each other for many years. So I call him. He says, oh, yeah. So he starts sending me videos. He makes little videos on his iPhone or whatever he's doing with his feet. And he said, why don't you come up and see me? So I went up to his house, drove up to, he was living in Oregon at the time. I went up to his house, got a hotel, and went over to his house. We spent the day playing. It was absolutely spectacularly helpful and gave me tons of stuff to work on. And a direction to to go, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was awesome. And so, whenever I need something, like I went to see um, another guy in L.A. a couple years ago, went down to see him, spend an afternoon with him, tremendously helpful, you know. So, help is where you find it, right? You know, you just got to be open to it, and mm-hmm. you know, always have somebody who is 
a teacher, but also has got the mentoring thing, you know. Mm-hmm. You always need to be mentored. There's always somebody wiser than you. It's a it's a difficult thing outside of outside of drumming, I should say, to to find the mentor. Is it? I think so. I mean I, I think it's easier to find a drum teacher than to find a drum teacher who is also a mentor or just a mentor in general. Well, a mentor is that's my personal opinion. Yeah, of course. Well, a mentor is someone who has wisdom regarding things that you don't have Mm -hmm. and can help you get where you want to go. doesn't have to be a drummer. Some drummers are like that. Some musicians, I mean, it doesn't even have to be your instrument. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even have to be in your profession. I mean, if don't you have any friends that I'm not saying you, but right. don't you have any friends that don't play the drums? Right. You know, I sure. have friends. I have friends that don't play drums. I have one friend. You know, drums is his hobby, but that's not his work. You know, he's a very successful businessman. You know. But he's just a smart dude. We work out together. We hang out together all the time. And when I want perspective on something, I'll just call him. I said, I'll call him. I'll say, this is a perspective call. And I'll just talk. Right. And it tells me if I'm full of shit or not. <laughs> you need those people. You want somebody to be honest with you, right? Sure. Like, you know, my buddy out here in the East who, you know, my Yoda pal, you know. We have a great time talking always, you know, but if I'm full of shit about something, he's not afraid to say, well, wait a minute, that's not, that's not it. Right. You know, and I, the thing is you have to have people that you trust, right? It's Mm -hmm. about trust. And if you trust people, trust these people, then you can really open your heart to things. Mm-hmm. I agree. So, so you know, if you do find a, a drum teacher who happens to be a mentor, I have a couple of teachers who's I've had over the years whose lessons they just resonate today. You know, that's what you want. Mm-hmm. Find people like that. You know, go right. and get a couple of drum lessons. That's cool. But you want somebody who's going to like lead you down a path, man. It's going to help you. You know, illuminate something. Right. You know, in full transparency, the reason why I started the podcast in the beginning was I always I always wanted to take drum lessons from people, not specifically because I wanted to take drum lessons from them. I just wanted to hang and talk and learn and absorb sure. knowledge, whether it be about music or, or life or perspective, like you mentioned. And after a while, I said, man, these conversations – so I would just hire people you know, for an hour for a lesson. And I would just say, can we just, can we just meet for coffee instead? And can Mm -hmm. we just, can we just talk? And I know your time is valuable, but then it got to the point where I said, maybe other people would want to hear these conversations. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now a hundred and whatever, 67 podcasts later, here we are. But see, I think that's what people are hungry for. You know, there's tons of ways to learn how to play rudiments, Mm -hmm. but not everybody's going to sit and talk to you about how to interact with others. 
Right. You know, not everybody's going to can sit and talk with you about how to organize your mind or organize your time or, you know, how to improve your relationships with people. I mean, if this is not, you know, like ask Abby, but mm -hmm. still this is how people, this is how you become successful is you have life skill. And to me, the part of drum education that's missing at times is life skills. Yep. That's what it really, what makes drumming really work is you learn how to live skillfully. The principles that you use to become a drummer, a successful drummer, are no different than the principles that a portfolio manager or an athlete uses to be successful. It's the same stuff. The very same stuff, just a different container. Mm -hmm. I'm smiling because in the about section of Drummer's Resource, I sort of allude to that, that whether you want to become a professional drummer, lose 20 pounds, be the CEO of a <laughs> Fortune 500 company, the principles and, and all of those things are the same. And the things that I've tried to concentrate on with Drummer's Resource is those sort of things. Because I always say, you can go somewhere else and learn how to play paradiddles at 220. Mm -hmm. That's not what this is about. This is about and I love the fact that you said, learn how to live skillfully. I want more than paradiddles, dude. You know, I mean, I right. love paradiddles, but I want something more than that. You know, mm -hmm. when I, I studied with um, a gentleman in Los Angeles named Murray Spivak. Mm -hmm. Murray's passed away now. Uh, but when I lived there, he was one of the main teachers in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. He know, taught uh, Chad Wackerman, too. Chad, all the, yeah. you know, the Wackerman or Wackerman you know, Brothers clan, yeah, the Wackerman clan, Louis Belson, you hmm. know, uh, Carlos Vega, many guys, you know, right. And he was a gifted, gifted teacher, but he was also like this Yoda kind of guy. I mean, he was like super, like uber Yoda. You you go sit in his lessons and start talking, and it's amazing the stuff that he would say while you play and. You know, you talk to him, it's like talking to your grandpa. It was a, just the coolest. I looked forward to those lessons. It was, they were so great. And he could listen to your hands and he could tell you by just listening what kind of pressures you were using in either hand, how to release that so that you could play the strokes that we were working on. Um, it was pretty brilliant. He went to. He came to to Hollywood in the twenties to do sound effects for movies. He came from the vaudeville tradition, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, Billy Gladstone was one of his buddies and all this stuff. And his first professional gig in Hollywood was the original King Kong movie. Yeah, Chad and I talked about this a little bit on on the podcast. Yeah, Chad. Chad was like one of his best students, you know. And he started when he was really young. He was like yeah. six or something crazy. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but and and so apparently, uh, Spivak he was sort of like a he was kind of like a mad scientist when it came to that stuff too, wasn't he? With the sound effects and all, like he did all kinds of crazy. That's what things he did. He, sound effects for movies, and he yeah. actually won an Oscar, I think, for either was Hello Dolly or Contiki or one of those things for you know sound mm -hmm. recording, you know, a movie sound recording. That was his his main gig, but he kept his teaching practice, you know, active hmm. teaching practice. 
for years. Yeah, I think if you can find someone like that, that you know can can give both sides of the of the coin and say, okay, here I'll I can teach you how to play, which you can sort of learn for not learn from anyone, but but you can learn it. It's it's out there. And then I'll I'll give you the other thing is is the life lessons and the just how to you know how to navigate through life. You need they're out there. Yeah, I think you're one of those guys though. Well. That's nice. That, I mean, I, I try to, to offer more than just paradiddles to my students because mm-hmm. it's important. It helps make the paradiddles work. Right. <laughs> it fuels the paradiddles. Sure. You sure. You got to put some life into them too. Yeah. So if if people want to get in contact with you or, or study from you, I know that you you teach uh, privately, but do you teach Skype lessons as well? You know, I don't. You know, the, no. the, and and I don't right now. I don't have a lot of private students. I just have a few. Oh, okay. And the reason for that is because the Tower Power schedule, you know, has been for the last few years has been pretty unfriendly to extra stuff. I used to do a lot of extra gigs and other stuff you know and i just mm-hmm. started doing a few extra things now this year uh but you know our schedule is like 175 200 dates a year wow. around the world you know so there's that's a lot of travel a lot of gigs and so i kind of devote all my energy to that and if i'm home and somebody has called me got a hold of me you know you can reach me on facebook and that sort of stuff you know and i have them come over and we do a lesson mm-hmm. and i'm going to start uh, a couple days of teaching, uh, one a month at this place called Dub's Drum Basement in Dublin, California, which is like right in the Bay Area, right, right close to my house. It's oh, this cool. new little drum shop that just opened. Darren Phillips is the owner, and he's got a really cool little drum shop, you know, in the in the area, and uh, that's some great teachers. And so I'm going to go in there and, you know, throw my hat in the ring, you know, and, awesome. and get into it, you know. That's great. I didn't realize that that uh, that TOP was playing that many dates. Yeah, it's an organism, man. I mean, you know, we're we're doing it. Uh, we have a big recording project we're in the middle of. Um, we recorded twenty eight songs, and you know, so we're we're busy all the time. It's amazing to hear, especially you know how long you guys have been around uh what's what's the what do you think has been the secret to that success and the longevity of you guys being successful i would say probably you know the the leader of the band doesn't tell anybody what to do but if you're not doing it he'll tell you sure and so the concept of the music is very unique uh very personalized um, we've had like core members of the band be there for a long, long time. Guys come into the band, they tend to stay because it's a really cool work environment. Mm-hmm. You play really good music that's challenging, um, play a lot, you know, works hard. The band's a hardworking thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It's always been that way since I joined the band. Even the beginning, man, we would rehearse every day. Every day, and I'm not wow. bullshitting. Every day, we'd have a, either gigging, and if there was no gig on that day, there was a rehearsal, and we did that for years. And even today, um, we rehearse. We on this trip, we have a new singer, so 
on this trip, which is two weeks, uh, we've been doing a rehearsal before each show. So the sound check, which is usually we do every day, and that's kind of like a place where, you know, of course, you know, you do your sound check, but we also like tweak the music and work in little things, you know, but it never takes that long because mm -hmm. we, you know, we work on a section and say, okay, we're going to do this tonight or we're going to do this tomorrow night or, you know, get ready. The end of the week, we're going to do this and we mm -hmm. would do it for a few days in a row and then sure. stick it in the show. But with the singer now, he's learning songs. So we're rehearsing stuff for him. You know, we're blowing, you know, all day, you know, so today's great. We get the day off today, but, you know, lengthy rehearsals and then do a show and it's high energy stuff. And, you know, wow. How long are the rehearsals? Uh, we've been going an hour and a half or so. We had one day that was a couple hours. I mean, that's a lot for pre-show. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's always like that. It's hmm. always been, that's our, the way we do stuff. You know, there's always, we don't skimp on the preparation part. Sure. You know, sure. Hey, if it ain't broke, you know. Yeah. Well, Dave, I I got to tell you, this has been uh, an absolute pleasure having you. And oh, it's my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. I would I would love to do this again sometime. Like I said, I've been just a fan of your your work and your playing and and your books and everything for for years. And you've taught me a lot inadvertently, you know, whether you know it or not. So I just want to <laughs> thank you for for everything you've done for the drumming community and and for for taking the time to chat today. It's my pleasure. You know, story's still being written. Not done over here yet. I like so it. See how it goes. Well, any anytime you want to come back and, and tell talk more about your story, you're more than welcome. I'd love to have you. Well, thank you. It might be my pleasure. Thanks. Absolutely. And I'll talk to you soon. All right, brother. So there you have it, guys and girls, the one and only Dave Garibaldi. I hope that you enjoyed that. That was such an honor for me to have him on the podcast. And do me a favor, just, you know, be sure to thank him for, for doing this. And special shout out to Joe Bergamini for connecting Dave and I. And Joe Bergamini was actually on the podcast as well, as you probably know. And I'll link up to his interview in the show notes. And there's also a video that I shot. Dave was nice enough to invite me out to the Tower of Power sound check the other day. So I shot a video. I had like my own personal concert. Uh, my own personal Tower Power concert, which was pretty amazing. I'll also put that in the show notes. You can check all that out at drummersresource.com forward slash 169. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Peace. <laughs>